I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. The fabulous Lee Campbell stops by Manhattan today to tell us about what she's up to at Raynar, the new brasserie in Williamsburg. How are you? I'm okay. It's nice to see Summer you. Summer in the city. So, yeah, it really is, actually. Although, I, I, I have to be yeah. honest, I mean, living out in, a, you know, Brooklyn, sometimes you don't even kind of feel like you're in the city. How are the dogs? The dogs are great. The dogs are great. They'd like me to work a little less, but uh, but they're good. I remember you actually kind of defined for me how to really enjoy summer because you said that during your time in the Hamptons, Mm -hmm. you would come home each evening and drink a rosé from a different part of the world and have a salad. And I thought, that is actually perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I did that with my friend Bonnie, who uh, was the GM at Nick and Tony's when I was there. And we had such wonderful evenings every night. We would just come, you know, other people were going to these clubs and, you know, we would just drink uh, Mosca Filaro and have a lobster salad and... Good times. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. I wish I was there. Yeah. I like a good uh, pale Moscow Filaro. Yeah, with a little rosé tint to <laughs> it. Right. You know what I mean? Cause it's variegated like, skins. It's like the Pinot Gris thing. Like sometimes I'm really white, sometimes right. a little rosy. That's right. That's hey, right. so why don't we set the stage a little bit? Okay. So you, uh, I remember you said your first restaurant job, there was a swing. There was a, a like a tree swing oh, outside. yes. And, it's and an always, herb garden. <laughs> it's always, and an upstairs office. Sounds pretty uh, idyllic, with a to view. be honest. An office at a restaurant with a upstairs. view. Upstairs. Upstairs at the corner of 21st Street and R and DuPont. That was Washington, D.C., restaurant Nora. I thought that became my standard bearer. And when I came to New York, I was sort of... Yeah, how's it going <laughs> with the tree swing in the Manhattan <laughs> Manhattan scene. It was beautiful. We weren't open for lunch. We weren't open on Sundays. I didn't work the floor anyway. I was a chef's assistant. But I, and then we were closed for a solid two weeks in August. So I believe that that was how restaurants ran. Right. And um, it is, right? mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the world I signed up for. And then I came to New York and I needed to do a quick change. So how did you, you kind of, you were like, this is cool. Did you dine there? Uh, that was exactly what happened. I was working for nonprofits and I had my eye on going back to school, going to get a law degree, um, ideally at Georgetown. I had gone to a very politically oriented undergraduate school and I had decided that I would probably work on the Hill someday. I'd already done a couple of, uh, internships with Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's the, uh, uh, the Washington DC delegate to the house. I think it's horrible. I can barely remember. And, uh, more importantly, cause um, I was thinking Willie Horton for a second. Yeah. No, like no, no, other. no. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great uh, oh, okay, senator sure. from New York. So I'd done a couple of, uh, internships undergrad and had sort of seen myself in this arena, moved to Washington DC thinking that I would cool my heels for a couple of years before I went to law school. Um, and then just tried a bunch of different things out just to make sure, cause I always loved the art. So I sort of kind of had one foot sort of in the art world, uh, one foot in the political arena. I think I might have been working for lawyers for the arts at that point. Okay. Uh, which was a way to sort of bring the politics yeah, and art and all that stuff together. It was it like together. a nonprofit pro bono organization. And then I had this wonderful, um, 
my mentor at the time, a, a friend of mine who also went to UVA, but a few years ahead of me, uh, said, oh, I have just the restaurant for you. You're going to love it, Liz. And she said, uh, Restaurant Nora. And I said, okay. So my boyfriend and I went uh, for my birthday. It was really wonderful. I remember where we sat in the front room. And um, everything looked beautiful. But I'd been to a lot of beautiful restaurants. My parents loved to eat out. And I'd always gotten to go to wonderful restaurants around um, New York and around the country. So we, we went into this restaurant, looked at the menu. The menu looked kind of simple, you know, but great. And then I think my, you know, big moment came when I flipped over the menu and on the other side of the menu was a list of purveyors and farmers. And what year was that? Oh, really? You're going to do this to me? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. 1902. <laughs> it was last year. <laughs> yeah. um, this yeah. was probably around Walt Whitman 90, was there in yeah, the dining room. Yeah, yeah exactly. This is probably around 96. 95, 96. Because that's pretty early. The reason I'm asking is because that's pretty early in the game for the farm to table I would, thing. I would like to think so. I mean, I know that Alice Waters and sure. people like Jonathan Waxman were doing yeah, it on the West Jeremiah Coast and holding it down at Jeremiah Tower. But on the East Coast, you know, we were still into that, you know, Italian-inflected continental yeah. thing. Everything was a bar and grill. Pasta Everything was a bar and grill. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Le Cirque and the Alfred Portales and, you know, that, that was what the restaurant was. It was still about pomp and circumstance, right. you know, and it wasn't about this pared down sort of experience. I think the chef there, uh, was able to sort of segue into it because she was Austrian born and she sort of had, you know, a slightly different, you know, I think she just had sort of a, a different approach. She was also a woman who became a chef later in life. Okay. So she had been like a mom and then she sort of be became a caterer and so, I just think I don't think she came through the ranks. Right. You know, she didn't sort of right. go through the dogma. She came with fresh eyes, and she was inspired by what was going on in the West. And she tried to, and then she had this sort of pastoral Austrian upbringing, and then she put it all together in Washington D.C. And it really just changed my life. Is it still there? Uh, it's still there. Wow, it's I been there, I guess, about out. 30 years now. I'm, uh, wow. I'm really, I, I actually didn't know of it outside of it's your beautiful. having worked It's there. beautiful. I mean, it's really nice. The The gentleman I work for now, a guy named Andrew Tarlow, his wife, Kate, tells me that that's her favorite, that's one of their favorite restaurants when they oh, go to okay. Washington, D.C. So I love to hear that sort of full circle experience. But so um, I had this wonderful meal. I took this menu home. I studied it. I couldn't believe that. I don't know. Food was much more complicated than I ever knew it to be. That sort of, I don't know, tapped into some yearning I had to bring my political studies to the food arena. Yeah, I get that. Okay. Right? Sure. And then I woke up the next day, knocked on the kitchen door, went, went through the herb garden next to the swing, knocked on the beautiful wooden kitchen door with my resume, told them I had never worked in a restaurant and uh, asked for a job. It's my theory that that person always gets that job. Yeah. The person who says, I've never worked in a restaurant. They, they closed the door. I waited about five or 10 minutes and they said, come on in, let's talk. And then I became Nora's assistant. And that was my first job in the business, which I can't um, be more appreciative to, I mean, appreciative for. It was probably one of the best entrees into the culinary world that I could have asked for. But they served appetizers too, right? Uh, they, they did. They okay. did. Although entree in France means appetizer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Foiled again. Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, it was great. They were um, they were hard asses, but they were some of the smartest people I have ever met. But they were hard asses. Well, Austrian a little bit. Yeah. Well, Austrian, and then her partner in both life and the um, the restaurant, a guy named Steve D'Amato, New Jersey, you know, Italian American, and just doesn't suffer fools. Really? Doesn't suffer. They no nobody did at that place. So you had to bring your A game. Um, it was a little. It was very nerve wracking. But I it, I knew that I was exactly where I was supposed to be, and I knew that these were the people that were going to show me how food could resonate in my life truly, and they did. Well, sounds like it worked out pretty well for both sides. They did. I mean, they were, um, you know, they were, well, I don't know. They, you know, I was there a year. I don't think I changed anybody's life there. But um, they were the first certified organic restaurant in the United States. You know, Steve D'Amato was putting together uh, a wine list that was, you know, focused on organics. I mean, this was, you know, 95. Right. Yeah. This was early. It wasn't on the tip of people's no. tongues at so, that time. I can that testify. Was, yeah. Actually. So that was great. So how did you end up in New York? 
Um, I don't know. I had one of my mini nervous breakdowns where I was just like, I don't know. I had one of those this morning. You know, I broke up with my boyfriend and work was probably feeling kind of like whatever. And I don't know. I always had this yearning to return to New York because I had never been able to conquer it. I had grown up around and sort of in New York City because my parents separated when I was pretty young. My mom moved to New York City. I was always sort of going back and forth, although I was rooted in the Hudson Valley. So I came down here on weekends and... And I always felt slightly excited and very overwhelmed by the city. And my mom worked at Columbia. I could have gone to Columbia for free, but I just couldn't see that I could do that. Uh I don't know. I just didn't see myself four years living in New York City. Like, it always seemed a little bit too much for me. I felt that way about NYU. Exactly like that. You did. Okay. And I mean, you know, Columbia's even, you know, NYU is at least like in the village. You know, Columbia is in almost like, you know, pastoral New York City. So I felt sort of overwhelmed by that. And I gravitated. I always gravitate to beautiful sort of meadow-like places. And UVA is one of the most, I don't know if you've ever been to that campus. I, I almost applied there because just did? from the brochures, oh, the it bro- yeah. super great. Oh, by the way, it's just like that. Yeah, It's sure like not. the most yeah. beautiful place on earth. But yeah. every time I go to the South, everyone's too nice. I well, they're only I nice for a little while. Handle it. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> See, maybe I don't know. Just my experience passing through the airport. You know? Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I went there because it was the most beautiful place I had ever been in my in my life, and uh, I'd spent some time there in college for some college summertime programs. Um, so I, I when I came back to so, but I so I always had this thing like, can I can I do this? Like, why can't? Why am I so afraid of New York? And once I worked for Nora, I realized that New York was where I had to go if I was really going to try to get into this business somehow. So, and it didn't, you know, it didn't hurt that my mom and my sister lived here and I had free place to stay. So I came back to New York and it just, I don't know, it just took off like wildfire. Yeah. Well, it's worked out pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's, no, I mean, it's just, uh, I've somehow always met the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. And well, I'd say I, I've, I'm a witness to the fact that you're a great person at meeting people. Cause I yeah. remember going into that Indian restaurant that you worked at and oh, yeah. I sat at the bar and I uh-huh. ordered a glass of wine and I was there for to death. three minutes, I talked to you three to minutes. Death. And you came over and you go, you look like a sommelier to me. And we had never <laughs> met or spoken or shared coffee or a wink or a glance yeah. or a hello. I had never seen you before. Maybe I'd seen you at a tasting something. I don't know. And you came right over and you were like, you look like a sommelier. Well, I was still really fresh back then and not so... Uh, this really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, not that saturated. You know, my problem is now I can't remember anybody. And I've I, somewhere around working for Louis Chester... Oh, you thought I was somebody like, else. No. That I still would recognize people. Like, I still go, oh, I know that guy. Is. Right. I think I saw him at that right. thing. And now I just stare blankly at people right. and kind of like, hi, you, you know. know you know what's really screwing I'm totally me saturated. is the beards. The I, beards are yeah, weird. Everybody looks the same now, and I can't. I don't. I'm a, is that? Oh, it's not him. It's and I, true. I almost go up to dude, and then it's not, not dude. You know, I didn't realize you knew so many people with beards. I don't actually. I, well, I actually that, don't know that people. That many people actually with could beards. be it. Is that I don't know, and so then I confuse the three. I that work I with beards, but I don't have a lot of beards in my personal life. In your personal life. Yeah, the guys I know, you know, they're pretty clean shaven. I like it like that. So you did work with Dresner. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh huh. And actually, the time you worked there was, um, you know, you were working there, and then shortly after, I believe Joe was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, what that was, was intense. Kind of like that was intense. Because um, he was the first founder of, all, of the company. Yeah, and... you know, I had been sort of asking him for a job for years. You and, had? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, but I kind of half asked. I mean, I don't know how serious I was. I just knew that I loved this man. Right. Well, I mean, I with good reason just loved this man and I, I was I met him when I was working at Chamber Street and David Lilly, who's the owner, co owner with Jamie Wolf, uh David Lilly said to me, Um, got this guy named Joe Dresner coming in today. Just wanna let you know you probably shouldn't take anything that he says too personally and don't let your feelings get hurt. Right. And I was like, what is this about? I I'm not standing for this for a moment. Right. I'd already seen the guy's late, you know, back label on some of my favorite wines. I'd probably been working at Chambers for a few weeks 
weeks at that point. And so I feel like when somebody says something right, like that to you, 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 no, you got it. Yeah. It's the guy, like you got to turn that around quickly. Right, 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 right. So when Joe walked in, I just ran right up to him. I gave him a big hug and he's kind of hard to hug because he's yeah, big. He's a big guy. And, uh, you know, he just sort of hopped off his bike and, uh, totally caught him off guard, gave him a big kiss and told him how glad I was to meet him. And I think I just, you know, he kind of blushed and, uh, that was it. And then we were buds after that. And oh, cause I was waiting to hear about like, oh, and actually he then made me cry. Oh, you know, Joe, no, <laughs> he was just, he kind of giggled. He kind of like yeah. turned into like a sheepish kind of teenage boy or something. So I just, that was sort of how we met and we bonded, you know, uh, slowly, but it always, he was always very warm to me. And I think maybe I had set that foundation, like we're going to be friends. So, you know, you have no choice in the matter. And, um, and then from that point on, whenever, you know, we sort of would talk, I'd go, well, why can't I come work for you? And he'd be like, ah, you know, look at this office, look at this company. There's like four people here, right. you know, like we can't afford to, uh, four is actually one more than yeah, was, exactly. <laughs> right. So Sheila, don't right, Sheila. right, right. So, uh, and there was Sean out in the West coast, but it was a small company and, and that was sort of how they liked it. But they definitely got to a point, I think, after working with Doug Palana for a while where it was growing. And mm-hmm. um, The we portfolio were, was huge yeah, at that point yeah. that, that they left. Yeah. On. And, mean, the, was, you know, the distribution networks across the country were starting to really pick up speed. And uh, so finally, um, I think I had just spent some time in Italy, sort of half-assed working a harvest in the Marche. And I'd come back and I was looking for a job. And I said to Joe... Uh, do you know of anything? Because I just, you know, knew that he had his ear nice to the hook. ground. Yeah. Nice no, that was it. I really had sort of given up on the idea of working for him. Got this it. was 2008. And he said, you know, hey, what did he say? He said, uh, I said, do you know of any jobs? And he goes, I'm not letting you work for anybody else. You're coming to work for us. Wow. Yeah. And that was it. And Uncle, um, Uncle Joe, just telling you. Just letting you know. Yeah. Um, and I went, really? Because this said, is also a man that was famous for like telling stories about how he specifically didn't hire people. Yeah. I remember we would walk around and he'd be like, yeah, and this guy tried to hire and I said no. I mean, he took a certain pleasure yes. out of it. You know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about Joe is that, um, I don't know. I mean, you just kind of wanted, I, in my opinion, I just sort of wanted to bask in his presence, right. you know, and I, I, I felt, totally get that. You get that? Like, yeah. like kind of the sun, you know, like a, cynical son but like the son you know he just he you knew you were in sort of the presence of greatness and you wanted to be around that more um he wasn't a perfect man in fact that was part of the draw right was how fucked up he was sometimes right. just you know just so angry sometimes or inappropriate and you're like where did that come from and then on the flip side so loving and supportive and tremendously loyal to his to his best friends and uh and and oh, and an amazingly loving father and and husband. I mean, gosh, what a family man! So, I wanted to be around that, and uh, and he brought me into his to his inner circle. And uh, a week later, he had a seizure, and uh, his cancer was diagnosed. And that was at a dinner, right? He was at a wine dinner at Tribeca Grill, and uh, I actually had left, so I didn't even witness it. I had just left, and then I got the call like the next morning that, oh, do you know Joe had a seizure last night after you left? And um, and and then that became a very new reality for for all of us. Um, this person that was sort of larger than life, um, and while I didn't know him back in the day when he did have like his triple bypass, and you know, I mean, I guess. I only knew him to be sort of larger than life, although other people who had known him for a while did know, you know, his fallibilities and did know him back when he used to smoke, you know, uh, unfiltered camels a pack a day and had his... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a huge smoker for, you know, all of his youth and into his middle age and then had a um, heart attack and had to have a triple bypass. That was when he, he started with the biking. That was when he quit smoking. Okay. I didn't know that part of him. I only knew sort of Joe on the bike and, you know, like this right. guy who would like, you know, I was working in Harlem at the time and, you know, ride up to Harlem on his bike and get off and you're like, what, what are you? Like, I don't even understand you, you know? So, um, so yeah, so that was a great experience, but it was a great experience, not just professionally. It was a really, I think it was an honor to be there with him towards the end of his life, to tell you the truth. I thought the relationship you guys had was really um, meaningful. Like you came, you brought him here once for a, mm-hmm. uh, an event and I remember you put uh, his glasses on him. Oh yeah. And I thought it was a real, there was a, there was, um, 
it was a really caring moment. Like oh. I just remember it distinctly, like the way that uh, you guys interacted was really real. Well, it was it was real because he wouldn't really allow anything else. That right. was the thing about Joe was that. Mm. You know, you're not going to get off with being fake with Joe. Right. And um, I think there was a part of me that, you know, you know, there was an aspect of me that was living out some fatherly fantasies. Uh, you know, my own dad is very emotionally distant, even though he's a fantastically friendly, warm and amazing provider and all of that. But emotionally, my dad has always been a little detached. Joe was anything but detached. Right. And I, and I got to tell you that one of the most important moments of my life was when Joe demanded that I come see him in the hospital. And, you know, whatever was going on that week, I was just like, oh, I'm so busy. Joe, I'm working for you. I'm so busy. And he was just like, I need you to, like, I'm telling wow. you, I need you to come see yeah. me. And I had never, nobody's ever said something like that to me. I mean, especially something that I looked that I looked up to in that way. I just he was just so real. He was really real. He asked for what he needed. I just I don't know that many men like that. Right. I, I know a lot of men who don't do those things. And I grew up with a man who didn't do those things. So to be around a man who was so like raw at certain times was for me um life changing. And I felt very honored to be there, to be his friend uh at a time when he needed friends. But beyond the personal relationship, it mm -hmm. also seems like you guys shared an outlook about what wine maybe should come You know, from. I guess so. I, 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 I'm still developing that outlook. Mm -hmm. I don't know okay. about you. Well, I mean, when you say uh -huh. that you were drawn to a farm-to-table restaurant, I you was. enjoyed the herb I mean, garden. I know. think um, I'm, always I'm always drawn to authenticity in any form. Right. And... I that's, think that's the signature of now, right. like this age. Right. Like you're either looking for it or you don't right. care at all. Right. And I, I, that was partially why I didn't ever think of becoming a sommelier when I first got into the restaurant business was because I actually thought that my gift was in the interaction with the people. Mm -hmm. So pretty darn good at. So my initial jobs in restaurants were always as the maitre d' or the floor manager. Right. And the sommelier to me seemed like this person who let like something almost get in between that interaction, oh, if you know what I mean. Like yeah, wine to me was almost something that maybe would sort of disturb that connection yeah. that you could have. And it didn't help that other than Steve D'Amato, the only wine people I knew were, you know, the Psalms in New York circa 98. Right. A little and different scene. That was a different scene. Yeah. That was a really different scene. There was a lot of Europeans. A lot and of cronyism, I thought. A lot of cronyism and a lot of people who, you know, just were perpetuating sort of, I don't know, such... I hear you on it. Such just false sort of. So that was the opposite of authenticity. So I never right. was interested in wine. I was like, I don't need to hang out with those snobs, you know, like I want to be around people who are looking for ways to connect with people, not people that are looking for ways to make other people feel stupid. And that's what I thought wine was all about. And it wasn't until I met a guy named uh, Charlie Woods, oh, okay. who um, really turned, I mean, I really owe Charlie Woods like my sort of engagement with wine. I I fully I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Him and Mark Whitmore, but even more Charlie, because I spent a lot more time with him. I worked for, so I was working at Gotham Bar and Grill at the time as a floor manager. Um, wasn't a very good fit for me. I was there for about a year. And, um, and so Charlie said, why don't you come work for us? They had this company called Vineyard Expression. So it was a distribution company, a little import as well. And they were working with, with, with uh, producers like Claude Courtois, wow. Darden Revo, Domaine de Loratoire. So what's the response when you bring those to a restaurant and people are like, um, is this, is there something wrong here? Because this seems to exactly. have bubbles in it. Exactly. I don't know. You know, the response is all over the map. And I think that the thing that was tough for me at that point is Vineyard Expressions was a very sort of young company and, you know, wasn't really set up for like major support and mentoring. Um, but you know, I was very green and I didn't know how to answer that. I was like, I actually don't really know, right. you know, I just think that the wine sometimes is the best thing you've ever had. You know, like Tuesday, this wine was really good. Yeah, right, right, right. And now it's Friday and I opened the same bottle of the same type of wine and it's like mean, you know? Right. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, I came into it because Charlie made it about farmers and he sort of introduced me to these winemakers that were really, 
just salt of the earth, you know? And then I went, oh, that's what wine is. And, you know, since my grandfather was a farmer in Jamaica, I was like, well, it's just farming. And it just happens that the end result is something different than bacon, you know? Like it's, you know, so that was sort of how I got into it. That was how I decided that I actually had the right to be in it. Because I don't think, I think there was, there was part of you sometimes when you, when you poo-poo something, there's also sometimes a part of you that wonders if you're good enough, you know, if you have, if you have what it takes or if you're smart enough or if you're sophisticated enough to work with something like wine. And I certainly had, you know, friends and even a boyfriend at the time that made me feel like, you know, if you do this wine thing, you have to act this way. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to, and I don't even know if I can. And and let's be honest, Mm -hmm. you're a black woman. Mm -hmm. Probably not so many other black women around that you can look at and be like, well, that person Doing it. Yeah, it's true. And the couple of people that I did know weren't really interested in mentoring me, um, which is why I try really hard to, to support anybody who comes to me, black, white, you know, female, male. But I think the other thing is, is that, um, I don't know, you know, Levy, I was thinking about this earlier today. I, I don't think... I don't think the real reason I didn't want to become a sommelier right off was because I didn't see people like me doing it. Cause that had never stopped me before. That had okay. never, you know, I mean, it just, I think it's just that wine didn't feel like something that was like loving or something. It didn't it. feel, it didn't feel nice to me. It mm-hmm. felt kind of mean, you so know, fast forward. Uh-huh. What are you up to now with your program? I mean, how are you well. implementing uh, what you're, those thoughts? Um, I guess I try to make wine very accessible. Uh-huh. And I think that might be hard for some people to believe if they look at the list and they go, but I don't know any of these wines. I'm okay. Like, so let's address that for a little right, bit. Right. So, I mean, there's a couple of ways. I mean, my ideal way to operate as a sommelier, maybe you're the same way. It's just like, what do you like? Well, just talk to the table, chat with them, get a good like vibe going and yeah. figuring out like who these people are. Maybe ask them a little bit about what they're looking for or what they generally like. And then yeah. go, can I just bring you something? Like, Oh, you do? Oh yeah, I do that. That's probably like... Eight out of ten times, that's what I do. Is is it made easier when the list is somewhat in the same price range? Um, I think so. I mean, I definitely, if I think that, yes, you, right, you're in a whole, you know, you've worked in a whole different zone where it's like, well, I could either do $75 or I could do $7,500. You know, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, how do you know? Yeah, it's a lot different when you basically know nobody's going to get mad, you know, anywhere between 50 and $75 right. is basically our sweet spot. Right. And yeah, nobody's going to get mad there. Right. right. I mean, I should say nobody. I'm still really sensitive to people who are like, look, I don't want to spend $50. I yeah. want to spend $40 or, you know, and we've got things. We've got things for everybody. But yeah, I think that price point takes a lot of that stress out of it because certainly as wine directors, you know, the bottom line on some levels is sales and, and you certainly want to maximize your sales wherever you can um, if you have a very large list and a very deep seller price-wise. Since that's not my issue, I get to just sort of jump in, have some fun, and find out what they like. Are there other things mm-hmm. that you've done, like structurally, where you felt like you were trying to make it a friendlier program? Or is it more about staff training and getting the other people to be as friendly as you are? Um, yeah, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I, I, re, I sort of restructured the list lately, where I, blo- I sort of broke it down to regions. And then I put a little blurb under each region, like, oh, this is what this region is about. Because originally it was more kind of everything was together. Everything was together. And I think even originally, like, you know, whoever, the graphic designer made the font sort of small, small. And, you know, so I think I just sort of made it everything a little bigger and just a little bit easier to read. And then I broke it down to different, you know. I found that can have a huge impact. Yeah. Like, yeah. people get angry when they can't read it. Right. And I was even realizing I was having problems, like, looking over people's shoulder and finding things. So I was like, if I can't find anything, then they probably can't find anything. And I know this list, right? So um, so, I, I, so I broke it down in that way, and I, I made it, you know, more regional. Although the regions are still my little messed up regions, you know? The regions right. are not, like, Bordeaux and Burgundy. Yeah. 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 Yes. Exactly. No, it's called Loire Atlantique. Right, right, area. right, right. Uh, you know, everything, like, sort of, uh, let's say, West of Angers. So, um, so yeah, you know, and then I, you know, one area is called, well, Andrew Tarla made me change it, but I think at first I was going to call it the yawn. And he was like, what the heck is the yawn? Right, 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 right. <laughs> and I was right. like, okay, 
really far north in Burgundy. When I you're changed really, it to really yeah. sleepy. Beyond <laughs> comes up. Yeah. That's right. So I, I changed it to like way far north Burgundy. You know, like something right. like that. And I think that made it more accessible. The Alto Burgundy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, so I don't know. We, we. I'm having. You know, I'm looking for ways to make that more doable. And I'm. I'm never. You know, we have grape varieties in each wine. So yeah. if people do sort of need to glom to what grapes they like, maybe that will help them to some degree. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not at all, um, you know, against making a list more user-friendly in its physical form, but I think the most important thing is actually the staffing. And I have a great management team who knows these wines really well. And when I'm not on the floor, they are my ambassadors and they do a fantastic job. So you spoke a little bit about regions. I mean, uh, are we mostly talking about regions inside of France? Yeah, Andrew wanted an all-French list. So it is all French. Mm-hmm. Even the sparkling, is everything, everything's French? Uh, there's one Austrian sparkling, okay. you know. Like, you know, I've snuck in um, one, two, three, four non-French wines. One oh, okay. is Steve Edmonds Gamay Rosé, because Steve Edmonds and it's Gamay Rosé from the Sierra Nevadas. One was a Austrian sparkling wine from Syria. One was, and then two are from Switzerland, but it's the Valet. It's just right over there. It's just over there. It's just well, across it's the cool that you're pioneering that a lot because I, I feel like outside of Rosenthal, there's not a lot of people working with Swiss. Well, I'm taking Swiss. a, I'm taking a hit on it. I'm not, yeah. I don't mark it up right. to my normal it's price point. It's difficult. They're so expensive yeah, sometimes. I just, you know, I mark it up a more limited way. And usually anybody who's going to really order Swiss wine anyway is going to be like in the business or anything. So I'm always happy to like, Oh, you know, and I didn't right, mark it right, up right, that right. much and blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, I think that there's some really great stuff out there, but I think it's, it can be really kind of cost prohibitive so why the change why the choice to do french i mean why do you think was going on with andrew when he did um, that? is that what he likes to drink that's what he loves but i think it's also you know and none of this is an exact science but i think just when he conceived this restaurant yeah. he conceived it as almost like a very rustic modern primitive brooklyn brasserie and it, has it been understood in those terms? I think so. Yeah, because I think I feel you like look at the, so many mm-hmm. people are coming from Manhattan. Right? Are, are they seeing it that way? Or? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think if you walk into the space, it reads brasserie. Okay. Um, but like with like like different really amazing details and and wood plank, you know, some tile floor, some wood plank floor, some Art Deco, modern sort of Art Deco chandeliers. Um, but I think um, I think it reads a little a little brasserie, and, and, and the ceilings are extremely high. Right. So we really benefit from that sort of um, amazing sort of height. Um, so yeah, I think it reads brasserie, and I just think that that was you know he wanted to name it Reynard, which means fox, mm-hmm. and um, everything about it just sort of felt French to him. And right. you know you don't have to tell me twice to create a French wine list. I'm happy to do that. Sure. But up on the roof we have um, a bar, and there I have a little a little bit more of an international selection. It's a very small wine selection, but um, there it's just more inspired by that the fact you're on a roof and you know roofs you should be drinking like Albarino and Muscadet and and Riesling and I just felt like well they should just be roof wines they shouldn't be like French wines you know so the, I guess the reason I ask is if it's been received that way is because when I read the the New York Times review I felt like it was being the restaurant was kind of being held up as like the summation of Brooklyn fine dining well they need they somehow need to do that I yeah. don't know I mean I think that we're the most ambitious uh-huh. thing in Brooklyn right now. I mean, so let's yeah. talk about that for a second, because um, outside of maybe Byron Bates, mm-hmm. you're the only kind of like name wine director sommelier right. that I can think of right. in all of Brooklyn. Right. Because people are like, hey, go to Franny's, but nobody right. really thinks of the, the name of the person who right. does the list at Franny's. Right, 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 right. So right. Do, you, do you see that as a change? Like, are restaurants going to be more ambitious? Are we going to see more like... Uh, celebrity sommeliers, people well-known sommeliers going to Brooklyn? Because it's, up till now, not what you'd associiate. I mean, Byron hasn't been there that mm-hmm. long. and I he's, mean, already, this... he's already gone. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know he shifted out. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I think Brooklyn is always going to be Brooklyn on some level. Yeah. I do think you're going to see more and more ambition there. But part of the reason people go to Brooklyn is to dial it back. Part of the reason I think a lot of these chefs leave these four-star, three-star restaurants and open their own place in Brooklyn is so that they can have a simpler life and a simpler restaurant and something that doesn't need to have the same type of glassware and plates and fine dining sort of aspect. So I think that I think that the, the while the bar is going to raise, I don't know that you're necessarily going to see 
you know, lots of sommeliers out there. Uh-huh. Um, and, and to be honest, until this project came into um, Andrew's orbit, you know, there wasn't really a job for me. I mean, right. Andrew was maintaining the list at Diner and Marlowe. And well, Rome he was had fine. a little help. Yeah, this. yeah. But, you know, that was, you know, he could manage it, you know. Uh-huh. And it wasn't really until the hotel and the, and the restaurant and the rooftop bar came in that all of a sudden there was this need for somebody just to focus on the beverage program, or not the beverage program, because I don't do anything with liquor, but the wine program. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think the jury's still out. I don't know that. Um, and remember, everything in Brooklyn, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I, the only sort of things that sometimes I feel um, envy for my, my Manhattan colleagues is not even in, um, you know, being able to have a list of fine burgundies. Because while I like those wines, those aren't the wines that sort of inspire me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually more by the glass price point. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're I, saying... You, you know, like, I can't really go over a certain price by the glass. Like, mm-hmm. it's just obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's you can't still have Brooklyn. a $25 I cannot have glass a $25 glass pour. White wine. No. Yeah. It's, you know, I can't have an $18 what about for bubbles? Pour. Can you have $25 bubbles? Um, uh, I don't know. I might be able to, but I won't, I won't really won't, go there. Yeah, okay. I actually won't go over $15. And sometimes I still take a loss on it. So, you know... So that says something, because yeah. the place that's being held up is, like, the pinnacle of this... Brooklyn movement, yeah. you know, this is a really reasonable place. It's, it's a really, it's really reasonable really not place. That expensive. Are people understanding it on its own terms when yeah. people say, hey, they don't have enough of the broad selection of wines that I yeah, want? Or, totally. hey, the, the this is not as polished as I wanted mm-hmm. in terms of maybe mm-hmm. service or mm-hmm. how something was plated. I right. mean, are people getting what it's supposed to Absolutely. be? Or are they applying standards that are a little bit They're more not. than is necessary. They get it. They totally get You're t- it. You mean the customers? The customers. But what about the things that are written? Mm, I think it's hard because you have to understand that Andrew Tarlow is a very, even, you know, I think all of us, I think that we have these sort of, sort of reputations and these sort of auras are about us and people, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's not even half the time about the restaurant. Sometimes I feel like people are just writing about Andrew, uh-huh. you know, and uh-huh. sort of the audacity. The audacity. The audacity yeah. that is Andrew, if you know what I mean. Well, let's talk about Andrew a little yeah. bit. What's it like? Uh, you know, so what's a day in the life? Uh, day in the life is um, working for Andrew is, is a dream. Uh-huh. It's a dream. I mean, to leave working for Louis Dresner, if I had to leave him, and then to go work for Andrew, I'm the luckiest girl. Um, he gives me an, an, an immense amount of freedom. He, I buy a lot of wines that he would never buy. He's totally okay with that. And in terms of somebody as a, a supervisor or a supporter or somebody to, yeah, he's just fair. What, what he is, which is really funny, so he's extremely creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's extremely calm. Yeah, he seems like a soft-spoken guy. Yeah, I've never seen him. I've actually never seen him raise his voice ever. Mm-hmm. I've never actually, anybody who is affiliated with the restaurant, I mean, sorry, with the hotel, I've never seen them lose their cool. Really? And we've had moments, you know. Yeah. So, you know, Andrew is is a really wonderful guy to work for. And so it does sometimes pain me when I read these things. Either way, where they kind of pigeonhole him either way. Sometimes they just make him into this, like, weird caricature of Brooklyn fashion and mm-hmm. style. And I'm just like, God, he's, like, so much more than that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, or, he does dress quite well, though. He's I mean, a natty dresser. He comes from a family dude. of tailors, you know? Oh, so I didn't know sue that. him. He comes from a family of Jewish tailors. <laughs> I didn't know. You know? So it's, I mean, I, I would aspire to have... <laughs> anything near those that that wardrobe i mean he, he wears great i mean when he came to my apartment those are probably the most expensive shoes that i've ever walked from my apartment or at least the nicest i mean you know you I mean, I've, I've welcomed winemakers from around the world right you know he's, right he's a good looking guy he's a he's he's a he's a good looking guy but um he's a he's a creative entity and mm-hmm. that's what's more fun to be around andrew is is first of all he's very supportive as as you know the person you answer to but to see those wheels always turning is a heck of a lot of fun and it really sort of kind of inspires you because i'm kind of a naysayer kind of like i don't know if we're going to be able to do that and he's like why not why can't we do that which is a great attitude I, yes, to have if you're going to go out to a place like the why not and, guy right and that's why he's been able i think to do what he does and um you know the only thing with these reviews is just that people need to have an angle and i just feel like sometimes it's the angle that's driving the reviews and not enough of the qualitative experience mm-hmm. but you know at the end of the day our 
demographic, they're not really the people that caught up, get caught up in right. how many stars are written about us in the Times or the Post. Do you feel like you're critic proof at this point? I mean, I'm asking because, you know, in a way certain movies is like, oh, well, the, you know, the heavy critics come down on it, yet it did huge box office, you know? You I know, mean, is it like that? I don't know if we're critic proof, but I'll just say that the lion's share of the people that are our patrons aren't really that interested right. in what the man has to say about us. So what would they be interested in? I mean, what, uh, pirate radio station or, or like weed magazine or, I mean, like, what is it that I carries think it's much weight? more community based? I think okay. it's what their friends it's word think. Of, word, of, word of mouth. Word of mouth. And I also think that, um, you know, I think that, I think that Andrew is very much sort of the center of a network of, like, what is community? You mm. know, like, you know, the people, everybody knows everybody. Like, you right. know, like, it's just, you go to our restaurants and everybody, know, like, I can't walk into an, one of our restaurants without knowing somebody that's there. And that's, so it's more, it's more community based. It I seems think. like that's a big theme for him, at least yeah. in terms of suppliers. Uh, certainly for suppliers. And, you know, even when he was buying wines, he was very happy just to buy from Neil Rosenthal, Joe Dresner, and Kermit Lynch. Sure. Well, I remember Rosenthal chose right. Diner yes. as his, his, his place in Mondovino, which is not at all, like, minor. I mean, mm -hmm. especially since it's, it's basically become the sex in the city of the wine world. Like, the way so. it's like, hey, what's the wine world like? Oh, right. let's, let me consult Mondovino right. to see what it's like. Right. I mean, you know, right. it's right. A, right. It, it changed what I think people perceive the contours of the wine world to be. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, yes, to some degree. I mean, it was a very, I think it was a, a niche of the of the wine world. I don't think it was the wine world overall. But in terms of the um, the authentic sort of rarefied niche where people are going for what is real and true. Yeah, I think that um, it really showed kind of shed a light on that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think our, our, our restaurants are a little bit more about family and community and vibe and network. Are families coming in? Do yeah. we see small children? A lot of small children. And we're very family friendly. I'm not saying kids are sitting there up at, you know, 10 p.m., but it's not, you know, it's not uh, Italy. But it's, um, you know, Andrew is a family man, and, um, yeah, we're, we're very family friendly. And I love that. I love that there are all these little well-dressed kids running around around 6.30 and 7 o'clock our restaurants and that people feel really comfortable to do that and that they don't have to, see, they don't have to disassociate their appreciation of good food and wine because they have kids, you know? I mean, it's like, it's, you know, one of the things I feel like I've been able to do is is have, like, almost no uh, separation between my profession and my personal life. I mean, I do, I do, I do. But there's not, like, there's a personal me and a professional me. It's the same person. And, and I love to see that our restaurants seem to encourage and support that same sort of, you know, approach to life that, you know, oh, your kids are part of your life. You don't leave them at home. You bring them with you and, you know, allow them to do all the stupid things that kids do and blah, blah, blah. And it's cool. And, and nothing has to be perfect. You know, you know, the other thing I think about our restaurants is we sort of celebrate imperfection. And mm -hmm. I think people get that. Like, um, are we seeing changes now that more Manhattanites are being like, hey, let's check this out? Yeah. But I think that at the end of the day, though, the only people that move to Brooklyn are people with, um, a more open mind. And mm -hmm. so even mm -hmm. though you seem maybe people that would have lived in the West Village or people that would have lived in Tribeca or people that already would have chosen to live in sort of fringe, more fringe communities, not the Upper East Sides and the Upper West Siders of the world, but people that were already sort of not, you know, totally, you know, part of that life. They were already sort of out of the box. They were already open and a little bit freer. Those are the people that are coming to Williamsburg. And while Williamsburg is growing up and it's nice to see, um, I think the heart of it is still, you know, a more free, open lifestyle that's not constrained by New York affluence. Understood. So mm -hmm. with, with, in terms of changes, I mean, you guys, um, it seems like the changes that you might make would be things that you thought rather than things that you read and were criticized for. It doesn't sound like you guys are going to pander. No, you know, it's interesting. This is the thing. And this is part of that whole um, why not and embracing sort of imperfection. We're not perfect. Yeah. We're not like living in a bubble where we don't care what anybody says and we don't oh, care what okay. anybody writes. Right. It's just that you have to temper it with, but what are we trying to achieve and who are we? Mm -hmm. You know, I've already seen some tinkering happening since the New York Times review came out. I have. It's, it's not like nothing he said was true and he was totally off base, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I've already seen some tinkering happening, but I think overall... You know, and, and so th what I'm saying is that the, we 
as a company, our ego isn't caught up in that. Our right. ego isn't caught up with, you can't tell us what to do and we're better than you oh, and we know okay, better. Okay, no, okay. no. That's what I'm saying. What's so kind of wonderful about our restaurants is I do, I think, I think that we meet people on equal ground mm-hmm. and we're not above them, but we're not below them either. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear what people say and we might choose to listen and we might choose not to. So what does the wine list look like in three years? I mean, what are you guys thinking about? Is it pretty much the template that we've seen? Is it going to get bigger? Is it? Well, I definitely, I'm not, I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to buy any more wine right now. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that's going to get bigger. What I would like to do in a few years is as we're building cellar space and things like that and getting things a little bit tighter in terms of how we store wine, you know, what's great to be part of a, a broad project like this is you get to customize a lot of things. You get to build out things. I'd like to see, you know, just, I think a deeper cellar in terms of some aged wines, but wines still that are in our, in our sort of purview, in my purview. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I want to see some, some old, you know, aged co from Clos Roche Blanc. I don't necessarily want, I still don't necessarily want to see like Bordeaux from 82. Like I just, mm-hmm. that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there are so many restaurants that can do that in a more meaningful way. And I would just rather be able to sit on Auvernois and sell it as I want to, instead of having being already sold out because the few cases I got, you know, were drank within the first two months of being open, you know, just right. things like that. I would just like to be able to hold things back a little bit more and just have a little bit more interest in terms of um, wines that, that maybe people don't think can age, that can age. You know, right now I'm selling Chateau Simon Rosé. It's a 2010. Oh, so delicious. So delicious, but so young. It's yeah. 2010 and it's delicious. You know how good it's going to be in five years? I mean, and the only reason I know this is because Robert Chatterton always sold it really old, right. you know, and to go and taste it the way that Rosenthal is selling it, which is fine, but you just know how the white, especially the whites and the rosés are going to age. It's just, I would like to be able to sell things when it's appropriate to sell them. And I think that's really the only major change. I um, am having fun rediscovering Austria right now because I'd spent a lot of time around Austrian wines about five or six years ago. And then I got really deep into sort of, you know, Joe Dresner type wines. And now that I'm buying wines again, I'm having a little bit more of an opportunity to taste, you know, things that I haven't tasted for five years or stuff. So right now I'm rediscovering why I I love, uh, you know, Austrian Riesling so much. I probably cannot buy that much Austrian Riesling. I don't really have a spot for it. But the the sort of the just the mineral and the voluptuousness and the crystalline structure of like reason from primary rock and the vacao like you know I can't even I can't even afford half of these wines but they're you know I'm ex- yeah I'm really excited to rediscover that I think that what happens in the wine world I hope for us that have been doing it for a long time is that you just keep coming back to things and you keep kind of mm-hmm. rediscovering things you know I mean obviously I mean I'm I'm really excited about the work that Kevin McKenna is doing in Italy right now in terms of finding new estates to import and it's pretty seeing, uh, good yeah good Run. Yeah, and they're not all, you know, it's not all perfect, but the, but you know, God, that's exciting to see sort of the Italians kind of go toe to toe with the natural wine world in France and and Who what they thought? have to see. Who would have thought, you know, not and, that long ago? Yeah, and know. and just seeing what they're doing, and I don't mean the orange wines. I'm talking about all the other stuff. Just seeing like sure. natural prosecco, prosecco, like pet nat prosecco on mm-hmm. the market. Like that's yay. I think that's great. Well, he brings in some of the best ones yeah. of that of that category. Yeah, but Acapinti, I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, he, she's you know, you know he did I mean, it. Yeah. You know, he brought it in. Yeah, I mean, he obviously did. she made the wine. Yeah, but it went from no recognition yeah. and no respect to yeah. now it's a lot of people. It's the first wine Absolutely. they talk about. Absolutely. And, and and to be fair, I mean, I think the thing is, too, that I've always worked for people that were off the cusp. You know, the Terry, mm-hmm. Terry thesis mm-hmm. was at the cusp for, cusp right. for many years. Terry. You know, Joe Dresser and Kim McKenna at the cusp. So I'm kind of not the person to talk to about trends because I've been tasting... I've been tasting the wines that probably are supposedly trendy now, like, you know, Etna, Girard, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. Right. You know, I don't know. I'm kind of into the Roussillon right now. You are? I am. Who's standing out? You know, I like, you know, I, I like the work that Tom Luba does at Matassa a lot. I love uh, mm-hmm. Gobi wines. But there are some other sort of new renegade producers. There's a, an estate called, you know, Enfant Sauvage that's doing really great work. And I just think that right now we're seeing a lot of these natural wine people. And, and I love Bruno Duchesne. I love Bruno Duchesne from Collior. Um, he does sort of semi-carbonic, uh, you know, fresher, fresher styled wines in an area that is known for much heavier alcoholic wines. But 
So I, I like the Roussillon. I like the Roussillon because it just feels like one of those hodgepodge areas. It's like, is it Catalan? Is it French? Is right. it Spanish? Is it, oh, and it's right on the water, but then sometimes it's not on the water. It's kind of continental if you go up there. And I think that's a really interesting area. But, you know, it's like, whatever. There, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that that's that sexy to anybody. Um, and I, you know, and, and I really do love the wines from, uh, north, from the Yon, from the Yon, from the Océan and really northern, in northern Burgundy, because I feel, I love acidity and I love minerality. And I think it's just going to be harder and harder to find this in certain areas because. That's a really good point. You know, Chablis Grand Cru. It's pretty rich stuff, you yeah. know? I mean, you know, these were the great, these were the great amphitheater vineyard sites in areas that couldn't otherwise ripen grapes. Right. But now, I don't know. I'm, if I'm really still craving like acid and minerality, I don't know. These wines are really voluptuous, especially in their youth. So I, I love, I love, I guess I like these little fringe areas that, you know, no, everybody scoffed at, you know, before mm-hmm. and like the Aube and Champagne. And I, I, you know, yeah, I like Nothing's bigger now. As, as quickly as I love a wine, I move on. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like the customer base often does the same? I feel like you know, people more, are pretty r- fickle. You know. um, I think more often than not. And I think that wine is so subjective. And then the wines that we work with, even more so because they have different moods on different days. I mean, it just... It's 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 so distressing sometimes when you want to share a wine with somebody that you think is like the best wine ever, right. and then because it's like I don't know humid that day, right. like the wine doesn't show the same. So let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. I think a lot of sommeliers who say, "Well, I don't like to carry those kind of wines." What right. they're talking about is they don't want to recommend something and have it not show up for work true. when it comes to the table. It's true. So what would you say to those people? What I'll say is a few things. I think that wine has to be more than one of the things I think Terry Thies wrote years ago in one of his catalogs, which is that you know you got to stop asking wine to do so much for you. Like mm-hmm. wine is, mm-hmm. doesn't need to change your life, mm-hmm. okay? And so that's kind of my feeling about wine. It's just that you know. It's it's about the it's it's about the whole convivial experience. Mm-hmm. The wine is simply part of it, mm-hmm. and if the wine shines at night, well then great. But maybe your date is shining more, and that's more important, you know. And so, I you know what I want the experience to be is that you're, they're they're kind of in our living room and we're having fun, and there's a larger convivial and hospitality experience going on, and that the wine is simply one element of it. That being said, I've also gotten really good, I think, at knowing what to do for natural wines to make them shine. So what is that? Because, okay, I go to the Dresdner tasting. Mm -hmm. Every bottle, you know, uh, 90% of them are smoking good. Mm -hmm. We only show it. They only show it. Yeah, so what do they do? Fruit days only. I feel like it's it's like Kobe beef where they stroke the bottle. I I think that's luck. I think that's luck. I mean, I don't know. The last Bowler tasting, I don't know if you went to it. I didn't feel like any of the dressing wines were showing well because I just thought the day was really weird. I don't know if you're right. Well, yeah, it was killer, but they yeah. calmed in. There you go. There you go. But I, I no, I think that um, I, I've become a little bit more manipulative manipulative to my wine. So, so before I open them, I go, you're nothing. And no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> no, um, I did. Listen to me. Yes. I am the boss. You are not the boss. Uh, I have started, um, decant- I, I opened the restaurant and I told Andrew I wanted to decant every single wine. Yeah. And I find it super helpful sometimes. Yeah. And, um, I feel that for our types of wines, it's, it's like huge. So do you feel like there's a certain level of reductivity that can come in with like maybe uh, semi-carbonic? That there's you have to get so around? much going on. There's yeah. just, it's, it's, you know, reductivity or just the natural yeast is just showing its ass a little bit more that day than it did the other day. I mean, it's just, there's so many things that are going on. Sometimes there's a little bit of spritz, you know, which can be fine or not fine. Sometimes the wines are just reticent, you know, it's just whatever. Like I just really believe, and I know that not all the winemakers agree with me about this, but natural wines, I just taste, I, I believe taste better when they're decanted. And, um, you know, yes, I, I don't necessarily decant uh, just a fun, frisky Provencal rosé. Mm-hmm. But everything else, I pretty much decant. And if we want to keep it cold, we throw the decanter in an ice bucket. But um, And I, I've actually started doing a lot of double and triple decanting, mm-hmm. which is something I really only did like very rarely in the past. I'm like it was, really hesitant to do doubles and triples. I, I, I feel do, like it's I, a hopscotch thing. I do it a lot. I do it a lot more. I should say I'm starting to do it a lot more. And I find um, I find it to be extremely helpful for the types of wines I work for, work with. I work for them too, but I work with. I, I just find that the wines, um, 
they just open up much quicker. Do you think storage just becomes so much more important when you're dealing with these kind of wines in yeah. terms of proper temperature? Yeah, I think I, absolutely. I think storing them at the, pro- at the proper temperature and serving them at the proper temperature mm-hmm. becomes, mm-hmm. The, you know, one of the most important things. So here are these wines. Mm-hmm. A while ago, nobody really paid them much mind. Mm-hmm. Au for instance, would be a good example of this. Mm-hmm. Now, sort of a cult item. Do you find that people are recognizing brand names in the natural wine world and really gravitating towards them? Like, hey, Gadavan, I got to have it. Yeah. Is that starting to happen uh, in the natural wine world? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Clos Roche Mons Rosé. Who right. knew? Right. Who knew? Um, yeah. Because I feel like... Yeah, now and it's become, there's... and you you have no uh, idea, and you actually you do know how you actually do have an idea of how hard I have to jockey to get all of these wines that don't even cost that much money. Right, you know what I mean? It's right. like this isn't even about like first growth, blah blah blah, that costs thousands of dollars. This is like you know a bottle. It's actually easier to get as long as you yeah, can pay for it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This is what's so tremendously this is a hilarious. Thirty-five dollar yeah. wholesale pull saw. Yeah. That, yeah, you're that I have to hustle for. Hustle for. You and know? you're fighting everybody for it. That's right. Do you think that means that, in general, the wine market has downshifted in terms of what people are willing to spend? If mm. everyone's. I think people like, are, um, they want to be smarter about what they're doing. Right. And I think that is about the evolution and the education of sort of the American wine drinking public, which is great. Mm-hmm. That they're no more, that they're not willing anymore just to take your word for it. Right. And that they're not willing to just, you know, believe what a certain critic or reviewer says about the vintage or about the producer, that they demand more QPR. It's a Lyle fascism. Um, Which means value for money. Yes. For those who So, yeah, you know, it's, I I think that's great. I think that's great that there are no, they're they're not just lemmings to see, that they want to be a little bit more engaged in the process. And, um, and I think that also we're seeing, um, sort of a downshifting of, how do, I, how do I say this? Like the sophisticated wine drinker that, that it used to be that the sophisticated wine drinker were only people that, you know, lived up on Park Avenue and da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are always those, you know, professors in Berkeley as exceptions, but, you or know, but most, yes, yes. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, these were very, you know, affluent folks who didn't have to worry about how much they were spending. But now you have very savvy wine drinkers at every level. You mm-hmm. have kids mm-hmm. in college who are, you know, do you know what I was drinking in college? I mean, you don't even actually right. want to know. Wow. I mean, it was the early 90s. It was I remember bad. I threw up like pink stuff in college there one go. time. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Liquor poisoning. So, yeah, it's just so what you're seeing is I think at every level, people are looking for more. They're looking for more um, value and they're looking for more beauty. And I think that's fantastic. I don't think beauty should only exist in a very expensive bottle of wine. Every day you you, you deal with certain givens mm-hmm. that are like, hey, this is how the business works. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you might feel like they rub up against the possibility of of creating the experience you're trying to create. Are there other things in a business where you're like, gee, if it were just a little different, if we mm-hmm. could do it a little different than how we do it, if, you know, if the open walk could be five years old that I'm serving to guess, or right. what is, what is something else though that you're like, gee, that's kind of a shame that that's the reality. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I wish, I definitely wish that more people felt that they could think for themselves. I don't know. You know, like I said, I, I already see more of that happening, but I do always feel though that on some level, you know, everybody thinks that somebody is smarter than they are and that they can't trust their own palate. And I think that I sort of exist as a wine professional who wants to empower people. I think I've always wanted to empower people in, in sort of everything that I've done. But I think that with wine, I'm trying to empower people to feel that they can make like good decisions about what they like and it doesn't have to be bad or stupid or there's not like a good answer or a wrong answer. Um, I guess, I guess that a little bit. And I also guess I think I wish that wine didn't become, wine wouldn't be like a, a mark, like a competitive thing. That's mm-hmm. one thing that I've sort of noticed is that if you go on, you know, some of the wine boards and what have you, it's like people are just competing with who had the more culty, rare, better, high marked wine. And I really wish that, um, I really wish that that was taken out of it quite a bit. But, you are know, we in danger of that, the too cool for school thing. Like, I mean, yeah, because that's a good way of distilling I it. feel like natural wine was really populist and yeah. it came around and, hey, these are things you yeah. can drink soon and they're not that expensive. But I feel like even within that paradigm, yeah. now you're starting to see, like, well, yeah. I drank the 
the blah blah blah, and you didn't. You I know. think I think we are, and I think that me being a contrarian, I uh, I'm working really hard against that. I mean, what would you uh, say to the post? Well, I guess I would say that. What would I really say to the yeah, post? I'm on. I'm asking. I don't know. I, you know, it, when I saw what that man wrote, I just think that there's another reality out there that. I just can't believe that you don't see, you know, mm. like I'm just, I'm just flabbergasted mm. that you don't see what's going on in the world around you. Um, so I guess it's just more surprise, but at the same time, I, I'm very sensitive of that clickish thing that mm -hmm. the natural wine we world supports. And, um, and so, for so instance, you think it's endemic a little bit more to the natural wine world? Though. I think, no, I think it's endemic to a lot of things. To wine. I think it's, I think it's endemic to a lot of things, but you know, I always feel like it's endemic to high school. You know, like it's just, right. it starts in high school and it never freaking ends. Right. And, you know, I feel like there's always people who are like, we're cooler than you are. No, we're cooler than you are. And remember mm -hmm. when I, I said, when I first got into wine, there was a, an echelon of people that were doing the same thing. They were just diff a different group of people, right. if you know what I mean. I do. So, you know, I think it's endemic to people and human nature in general. And so one of the things I know, so the Times came and took some pictures at Romans last week. And I at had... Raynor or Romans? Uh, at Romans. Okay. At Romans. Because, you know... Which is owned by the same owner. Same owner. Italian restaurant. And, um, and so I, um, so I had a few, I just, I just wanted to pour the wines I had open. And there was a moment where I looked at the wines and I said, I wonder if these wines are like freaky enough for their, like, for whatever right, their right, angle right, is, right, right, you know, right, because right. I had, let's see, I had like, uh, a white wine. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had a Montanitoli, uh, Canaiolo. Uh, uh, just what we had by the glass. I had still Lambrisco from Seati, but then I just had, then, but then I had Montedella or Valpolicella. It's just Valpolicella. Right, I don't know. Right, is that right, freaky right, enough? Right, right. And, where's the Etna? Uh, yeah, yeah. Where's the, yeah. And then where's I, the Corsican? yes. And then I had, there was some other wine that I'm actually blanking on right now. And then, uh, I also had, uh, what else did I have? Then I had, oh, and then I, oh, I had a, uh, Canavese Rosso from Ferrando, which That's is so a good, Nebbiolo Barbera. Yeah, I gotta brand. go to You do have to get a, but then somebody had ordered this white wine that I, I'm serving by the bottle. Cause I don't know, it makes me giggle and I want to serve it. And I know that it's not a cool wine. Right. Like, this is not a cool wine, right, but it's, right, right, it's right. Cavalotto white Pinot Nero. Oh, but it's good though. You like I used it? to serve that really? one by the glass. Yeah. Oh, nice. Couple of vintages in nice, a row. Actually. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Three I vintages know. in a row. I went to the Skernick. I gave up on the 09 vintage. You did. I think we're ripe. on to 10. We're on to 10. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, I tasted at the Skernick tasting. It made me giggle. That's I thought good. like, oh, well, this could be really fun. Right. And I know. That's not the hip shit That's right not now. the hip yeah. wine. Cavalotto is not hip. Right. And I have to like, but I put it, but I bought it. God damn it. Right. I bought it right. and I'm standing by it. But I'm a little, like, I'm still yeah. a little bit like, you're, but what if that shows that... up in the photo? Right. People are going to be right, like, because right, it doesn't even right. look white in the photo. It just says right. Longue. I don't right, even think right. it says Longue Bianco on the label. I just think it says Longue on the label. Like, they're going to think it's just like some old Nebbiolo. <laughs> At least it doesn't say Pino Nero, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So that's, that's the issue. Yeah. That's the issue. That's the issue is how, you know, like, you got to do what you think is right, you know? Well, Lee, I think you really are somebody who, who takes the care to do what you think is right and puts yourself out there. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I, I learned a lot, and thank you very much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.